0: Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding
1: therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table.
0: Hi, and welcome to episode two of the Tube to Table podcast, what to do while you wait. Practical tips for parents to set their tube-fed kids up for success for when the time finally comes to wean from the feeding tube.
1: I'm Jenny. Heidi, how are you doing today? I'm good, Jenny. I'm excited to be here today. Thank you. We get so many questions from parents about what to do while they're getting ready to wean or what to do while they're waiting or even what to do when they first get their tube in order to get themselves ready. And there's not a lot of information out there, I don't think, about how to start well so that you finish where you want. So I'm excited to talk about that sort of gray beginning area and give some people some direction.
0: The first thing that we like to talk to parents who are in the position of having a child with a feeding tube who needs it right now, but who may eventually be looking to wean from it. The first piece of advice is first do no harm. So we like to tell parents to stop and think and consider with all of the strategies or changes that you may be making to your child's tube feedings, to their schedules, when it comes to their therapies, anything at all that is directly or indirectly related to tube feeding. Just ask yourself, is this hurting or harming the way that my child relates to eating by mouth? And is it hurting or harming the way my child is relating to food or interactions around food or mealtimes, whether it's food going in their mouth or not? And that can be a really helpful guide. If it's making them more confused or more scared of food, then don't do it. (laughs) And if it makes them feel more comfortable and more accepting, then go ahead and keep going.
1: I think that is easier said than done, for sure. And I think one of the best ways to get that done, and it feels like you're not doing as much, but really it's just giving them space and time and giving them physical space, giving them emotional space, giving them time between meals and time between offerings that gives everybody a little bit of a mental and emotional break. And I think that's super hard for families because you feel like you're not doing enough and you should be doing Something, anything that's going to move your child forward. And it it feels counterintuitive, but from the kids we've worked with, that is actually can be a game changer. It it's can the space.
0: It can. The space is so important. And, and let's break it down a little bit for people. So when we talk about physical space, we're talking about oral eating. So a lot of times you have a child with a feeding tube, they're getting the majority or all of their food by tube, but they're still working on oral feeds, either in feeding therapy or at home at mealtimes. And what we mean by physical space is you want to make sure that if you're offering something to your child that you're kind of respecting like a little bubble of personal space and that you're not allowing food if they don't understand it or want it to come into that space unless they're initiating it or we like to use the word inviting that food to come into their space. And not every kid can like reach for a fork and bring it to their mouth, but you want to make sure a child is relaxed and feeling comfortable looking at the food, engaged with you before bringing any food Close to their mouth. And likewise, even if you're not at that place where there isn't any food being offered to your child by mouth, the same thing is true if your child is afraid around food. You want to respect that boundary. You want to still offer them experiences to see others eat and be involved in um, situations like food prep or at least surrounded by normal interactions with food, even if it may not be their own. But you don't want to push them to the point of being overwhelmed. So an example I like to use is if you have a toddler who's averse to eating orally because they're too fed or for other reasons, you don't necessarily want to force them to get messy or participate in meal prep if that is something that they're scared of. So just go slow and really respect the little bubble of personal space without bringing too much food or too many eating situations close to your child if they're not ready for them.
1: I think we joke around here about how sometimes an alternate personality takes over at mealtimes and we can put a link to some of our descriptions that we've used in the past, but I think people just turn into salesmen or game show hosts or history teachers. You know, they go on and on, look at this is food and that is food and don't you like it? It's orange. And they just go on and on about food without even realizing just how much of their words in the space around the kids at mealtimes sir, adding to the emotional and mental load that kids are feeling when they use that many words about food.
0: Yeah. And kids, even infants and toddlers are pretty tuned into their parents. And they, even if you're not saying if you eat this, mommy will be happy. Of course, I don't think anyone out is doing that. But I, I think even if you are Working on it a lot, kids get the point that your expectation and that your hope is in the mealtime and that you really hope they're going to reach for that piece of food. And that can be really confusing for a child that, for every other reason, isn't ready to reach for the food. So we just want to make sure that we're not pushing. And it can be really hard to sit on your hands. <laughs> but we're going to give some strategies um, in this episode and in other episodes about how to do that until your child has had an opportunity to rest and have some playful interactions with food that will help them build a foundation for getting ready. So let's dive into what that looks like. Let's dive into what the rest and play looks like. Heidi,
1: do you wanna talk a little bit about play? I'd be happy to talk about play. Play is actually one of my favorite things. It is relaxing and joyful and exploratory, and it's a really valuable way that kids learn. And they learn different ways at different ages. But what we do know about the most valuable play that has the most lasting impact and cognitively and emotionally and all those great things is play that's child-directed, not grown-up directed. And it needs to be developmentally appropriate to where the kids are. There's a period in time for messy play and where you learn about food textures and there's a, a... Time for dramatic play where you're pretending to feed babies and you're pretending to do things. And and the food play that's most valuable or any kind of play that's the most valuable is the one that's child directed and developmentally appropriate for the child. I know, Jenny, when a couple of years ago we had this discussion and you came to some revelations about play. In your own life, if you want to talk about that a little bit.
0: I would be happy to talk about that. I think one of the things, I was a feeding therapist that really, I really believe in the power of play. I still do. But when I became a mom and we have three boys in my house, it occurred to me (laughs) that play has to be appropriate not only for the child, but also for the family. And not every family is going to feel super comfortable. Not every parent is super playful with food. Depending on your schedule and your structure, it might not, messy play might not fly. And that's okay. So don't feel if you're not feeling super playful yourself as a parent, like you have to fake it or like you have to kind of ignore your instincts around kids getting messy or playing with food. If it doesn't feel Right to you. Don't do it. Just use your instincts as a guide, as a parent. If within your instincts and within your comfort zone, there's some room to be playful with food or allow your children the space to explore food in a playful way, then go ahead and do that. And then I think the the other thing as a feeding therapist, not as a mom, that I would like to just add, is in an attempt to kind of rebound from traditional therapies in this movement towards more responsive feeding, I think there was a little bit of an overcorrection in the therapy world and people started really realizing the impact of not pressuring kids and play became a really important piece of that. And while I do think it's important, I don't necessarily think it's the answer. So if you've been playing for a while with your child with food, or if you've been allowing your child to play with food and you're not getting anywhere, it's not, there's nothing wrong with your child. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. Play by itself isn't often enough. It's part of where we're going. That's why this kind of overcorrection started, people started to think that the way out of tube dependency were really intense play picnics where you spread a table of tablecloth on the ground and kids get to play and get super messy. And I don't know if any of you parents that are listening have read about any of those play picnics. That might be a super option for some kids and it might be completely overwhelming for others. So again, this is a place where play and rest are really intricately tied together. Play is play if it's comfortable. Play is play if it's child directed. If it's not, it's time to take a rest. And I think rest is this other side of this phase while you're waiting that's so important and often overlooked. What we know is that when kids have feeding tubes and they're not learning to eat or they have other medical stuff that's going on, there's often so many changes going on around either the tube feeds themselves you know, in terms of what's going in, the timing, the schedule, what specialists you're seeing, what therapists you're going to use, and all of that. And so, we just really want to talk a little bit about the importance of rest in addition to play.
1: I think, even the word rest, Jenny, when you said that, if I take a deep breath and even think about resting at my desk, it reframes things a little bit and is actually kind of valuable. And I think if I were a little one who'd been, food was just so much work. I think that would just make me feel more comfortable around food. And I think that leads us into the next segment that we wanted to talk about in the next little progression in our treatment progression is pleasure and comfort around food at the family mealtime. And I think we touched about that a little bit already in giving kids space and time, but just remembering what a typical family mealtime looks like, and it should be restful and social, and it shouldn't be a panel of people whose main job is to get the little one on the tube to eat. And so they should be able to be comfortable around food and be able to come to the table and sit there and be a participant in the mealtime, whether food goes in their mouth or not. They just need to be a typical participant at the family table.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also, this might be another really helpful place to talk about pleasure and comfort around food. One thing that helps kids be really at ease around food and adults, actually, is having some kind of really well-defined roles and responsibilities so that people know what to expect when they come to the table. And one resource that we talk about a lot, and you're going to probably hear in other episodes on the podcast, is the Division of Responsibility by Ellen Satter. A lot of feeding therapists talk a little bit about that paradigm that really helps people understand what everybody's roles and responsibilities are at a mealtime table. That way, you're not left guessing and accidentally pressuring your child to do things that they're not quite ready to do. Plus, for parents who are worried about feeding and worried about what their children, too fed or not, are eating, the division of responsibility can give you some framework so that you're not fumbling through space trying to figure out what to do. Heidi, would you talk just a little bit about what Ellen Sander talks about in the division of responsibility?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And it seems really simple, but it's really a powerful way to frame your thoughts about it. And the the division of responsibility really says that the parent has some clearly defined responsibilities. Yours are to provide the food, provide the time, determine the time to determine what the food is going to be, to determine where you're going to eat. The child's job is to decide if they're going to eat it and how much. And crossing over those roles, even in a little way, doesn't make the mealtime pleasurable and it doesn't lead towards the goal of the child being an independent eater someday.
0: And what's nice, what I think as a mom, what I really like about the division of responsibility is it still leaves me in charge of mealtime rules. Like, you know, like we don't throw our food at the table. You can't get down until, you know, everybody's still entitled as a parent to choose whatever rules are appropriate for the table. And that can be really hard to do when you have a nervous eater or a reluctant eater at the table. So as a mom, it's really helpful to me to just kind of stay in my lane, but also keep my my role as mom, you know, and, and and dad that we're in charge of what goes on in terms of the rules, but you're in charge of your body. That's the message we send to kids. You're in charge of your body, how much and whether or not you eat anything at all.
1: And Jenny, I think what's interesting is that Back when I've been a feeding therapist for 20 years and back when I first heard about this years and years ago, I thought that it couldn't work for our really vulnerable, fragile early eaters, our tube-dependent kids for that population. And I think, Jenny, what we found is that it does work and that you can get there. And we can talk about that a little bit more in later episodes. But I think just because it doesn't have an immediate response doesn't mean that it's an inappropriate way to divide up the rules and the responsibilities around the table. It's still, we're finding that it's still really valuable. It just needs that there's other pieces that need to be a part of that equation.
0: Yeah. And what we like to talk about is the division of responsibility is a nice guide to keep people feeling comfortable, to keep children feeling in control of their own bodies. And when they feel like they're in control of what's happening, it's less scary and afraid. And what we know is that when you have high quality mealtimes, when you focus on quality and the division of responsibility can help you do that, that quantity will come later. But without the quality, you really can get stuck in terms of making progress in terms of progressing oral feeds along or and helping kids become eaters. So I think it's really helpful. We'll put a link to the division of responsibility in our show notes for anybody that needs to look at it. It's a great resource for parents of tube-fed kids, but it's a great resource for parents in general. It's just a great reminder for anybody that sits at a table with a kid and eats.
1: And I think it's also where we want the kids to be, which, which is a great lead into the other thing that we want to talk about, is there's a lot of things that sometimes we can get stuck at feeding schedules and what we're putting through the tube, and that, that's certainly a part of this waiting period as well, and I think, Jenny, one of your comments the other day is that it's really helpful for parents to keep their goal focused on where you want them after the tube, and it may be that you can't go immediately, but that's something that you can work towards.
0: Yeah. So I had this really interesting conversation with a mom of a two-foot kid once, and she said to me that she felt like she needed like a roadmap, like a schedule. And because their child was in a really dire medical situation when they were born, they needed that protocol regimen for breathing and feeding and everything that helped keep their child alive. That's why the tube got put in in the first place. But that that kind of predetermined non-child focus, kind of more rote, I don't know if I'm describing it correctly, but like having like a predetermined medical protocol worked and kept the child alive and got them safe. But then when they grew out of that scary kind of medical phase, they were still being treated in that same way. And they were still treating tube feeds and weight checks and everything that kind of, you know, directly and indirectly was related to feeding in this kind of medical model versus remembering that the little person that's getting a tube feed is also going to grow up and become an eater one day. And so it can be really helpful to kind of have that shift when you and your medical team feel like your child is truly in a safe place to start asking the question, what is this going to look like when the tube isn't needed anymore? And so, when you start asking those questions, you can kind of look at every little factor that goes into tube feeding and see if you can tweak it a little bit more so it's more similar to what life is going to look like after the tube. So, a few little ideas are schedules. Sometimes people find a schedule, it takes them a long time to find a schedule for tube feeds that works for their child, and then they stick with it and they don't necessarily adjust it. And what we know, especially in the first couple years, of life is that kids' schedules change as their napping schedules change, as their development changes, so does their schedules. And for some reason, for two-bed kids, sometimes we forget to adjust schedules. So a kid that was on a continuous feed way back may still be on a continuous feed. So just asking you, working with your medical team and asking the questions yourself as a parent, does this schedule still work? Is there room to move towards a more age-appropriate schedule that looks more like what a child of my child's age would be eating if they didn't have a tube? So just start thinking about scheduling. Is the space of between meals enough? Is the schedule really working? So that's one thing. And then another thing that can be helpful to start thinking about is what's going in the tube. Heidi, I know you know about some resources and some things that are helpful to consider in terms of what is actually going in the tube feeds.
1: There's actually a lot of growing data that shows that putting a blended diet, which is blended real foods in the tube can actually have some great outcomes for kids. You know, I know we've seen in our program a number of kids who just couldn't tolerate their tube feedings and they ended up being placed on a continuous feeding or lots and lots of tiny feed spread throughout the day. And it seemed like the problem was the child's GI system, but when they transitioned to a blended diet, it actually was the food that was going in and that they were able to tolerate a blended diet much better. It's a little bit harder to find medical teams to support that some families are finding, but if parents keep looking, there actually is some data out there and we can put some links with our podcast that talks about different recipes to make it yourself, but there's also some products out there that you can buy for those families who, who don't have all day to make blended diet in addition to feeding the rest of their family. So there's there's some things you can buy that can go through the tube that are made of real food blends.
0: So check out our show notes after the show and we'll put a link to a book that has some recipes in it. We'll put a link to a company that sells some pre-packaged blended food meals, kind of just blended up foods that are pre-packaged for those people that aren't gonna be blending their own foods or don't have time to be blending their own foods. And then we'll also put a link to an article that talks a little bit about some of the benefits that blended foods can offer.
1: Just one other quick note on those blended foods is when families start doing it, sometimes those, or even formulas too, both can get extremely concentrated. And what we found too, You know, there are some medical conditions that do require concentrated food for one reason or another, but most of us don't eat food that's extremely high in calorie and high in density every single meal, every single day. And so if looking at the calories of your food and and the concentration and density of it doesn't seem typical for someone their age, I would also talk to your medical team about how to start transitioning that concentration towards something that's a little bit more age appropriate, a little bit more typical
0: and easier on the
1: system (laughs) and easier on that system. Many people, I think I've had so many people say that their kid doesn't tolerate a higher volume. So they've concentrated it. But I think we find almost the opposite almost every time that it's the density that they have the problem tolerating and it's not actually the volume.
0: Yeah. And I think at this point, the point is really just start asking those questions because you may have gotten to that concentration because you very well needed it for your child. But If we're looking towards who they're going to become as an eater, you might ask yourself, wow, that's a lot of calories and a little bit of food. That's not how they're going to be eating when they have a snack after school in a year. So just another quick reminder. So another area that we talk a little bit about is reading your child's cues as being an important part of setting them up for success later. A lot of feedback we get from parents, though, is everybody wants me to look for my child's hunger cues, and they're not there. And we believe you. <laughs> we believe you because often for tube fed kids or for kids with feeding challenges, they aren't going to show you hunger cues. A, they're being fed other things, generally, and for tube fed kids, they're getting their nutritional needs met by their tube feedings so they're not going to have as many chances or any chances to show you hunger. And B, even if they are hungry, if they have any fear associated with whatever negative experiences either came with the tube or the condition that caused the tube, things like reflux or vomiting or being intubated or having pressure around oral feeds early on, the hunger won't be enough for them to feel comfortable showing you a cue. So if your child isn't showing hunger cues, it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't. It means that they can't right now. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that they're not going to wean successfully if your child's showing hunger cues, go ahead and, you know, respond to them. And, you know, if you need to move up a tube feeding or move it back, great. But the point that Heidi made about responding to other cues when hunger cues are absent is really helpful. And Heidi, I believe you talk a little bit about fullness. I
1: think many parents will say that they can see cues of fullness that their kids will start to become, in fact, it's probably easiest to start with cues of too full. Um, They start to become uncomfortable. They move around a little bit. They push the tube away. They just don't look comfortable is probably the words we hear from families the most. And that's the easiest to see. And respecting those as a starting point can lead you towards seeing their cues of full instead of too full, now you can use cues of full and comfortable and done. And those are going to set you up when the time is right to responding to their cues of hunger, because those are the most subtle. And for kids who haven't felt hungry, like you were saying, Jenny, for kids who haven't felt that before, and that's, a, that's going to be a new feeling for them that makes parents a little bit more ready to see those cues because they've practiced on the on the more obvious ones of fullness. And sometimes medical teams don't really think about that. And so I think keeping good track of what you see with your child if you've been told they need, you know, whatever, 90 mLs and around 85 they start to get full, then talk to your medical team. Usually 5 mLs is not enough to make a difference in What they're getting nutritionally, but it's going to make a huge difference in their comfort. So keeping track of those cues of fullness is going to give you some good information to talk to your medical team about the best way to help you structure things and make sure that you're not overdoing what's going in the tube.
0: Yeah. And I think this cue reading is a really foundational part. And it's not something that we get a lot of, uh, you know, parents of two fed kids get a lot of opportunities to practice regarding hunger, but remembering that fullness is another area. But any cue reading around mealtimes, I'm overwhelmed. This is too much for me. I don't want you to offer that to me, whether it be orally or by two. Starting to help your child feel heard is going to also set the stage for this other really important part, Of setting your kids up for becoming oral eaters. And that's the social interactions that go into feeding and mealtimes. And so what we know is that we eat for a variety of different reasons. We eat based on what our body needs physiologically. We eat for comfort. And we also eat. Eating is a really amazing and somewhat universal opportunity for people to come together, especially in families. And so just because your child has a feeding tube doesn't mean that those opportunities aren't there. And I don't mean to pressure parents to have meal times at the table every meal of the day. Of course, that's not realistic in most schedules. But allowing your child to be around others when they're feeling comfortable and safe and seeing people relating to food, but also regardless of who's eating what, just being together, that's another really important thing that will impact your child's ability to become an eater. If they develop an understanding that mealtimes are really positive things, that that's a nice time to be together, it's a time of trust and togetherness, then when it becomes time to introduce oral feeds and reduce tube feeds, they're going to be a lot more open.
1: And that Is another place where you can practice reading your child's cues too. That's how social interactions begin, and it's really such a valuable connecting time of of attachment and of being included in a family, of being a participant in a family, and that can look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. It can be just a couple of people. It can be in a restaurant. It can be on the couch. It can be around a table. I think there's a lot of different ways that can look and You know, families put so much pressure on themselves anyway, and then you add in the layers of having a kid with special needs or having to deal with the feeding tube and the pressure amps up. And so this is a time just to give yourself a break and give your child a break. And just remember that this is a good time for you to enjoy your time together. I think most of the families are missing that piece and didn't even know that they were missing it, you know, didn't even know how enjoyable that could be because of all the pressure that gets built up around it.
0: And I always like to remind people, feeding kids is hard. Feeding families can be hard. That's normal. So if every meal isn't like a super success of togetherness and somebody's crying and somebody else is insisting on something else, that's okay. But just knowing that the together is the important part, you know, takes a little bit of pressure off. And it really is a precursor for what our ultimate goal is, which is helping your tube fed kids learn to eat and become happy and healthy eaters. So I hope that you guys all found this helpful. Thank you for joining us again today we're looking forward to some exciting episodes coming up so stay tuned we're going to have a parent joining us soon with a story of how her child transitioned from feeding tube to family table so we can't wait to hear a little bit about that and then we have some also some episodes upcoming about some really specific types of things that you can do with your child to improve the chances of them weaning sooner thanks for listening we'll be back next week Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table Podcast. Every week we're going to share our show notes at ThrivewithSpectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media. On Instagram and Facebook, we can be found at Thrive with Spectrum, and on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next
1: week.